this week's Revenge of the 80s Kids. This week, they begin their discussions about the top five films of the noughties. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I came out of the pictures after seeing this for the first time, it was literally, literally, I vomited a rainbow. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily think Nuclear Holocaust would make a great subject for a musical, but you know what? I buy it. The thing is, I, I just really love films where you actually get to eat ghosts. I just had this moment in the cinema where I felt like the roof had gone. You know, the whole roof. I was like, wow, this is so immersive. So, you know, at the end of the day, the film is all like, oh, it's Voldemort in a lava lamp. But I actually quite embrace that. Um, look, I'd never, you'd never hear me say that I love Twilight, but a reboot with Muppets? And the end of the film where he's killed by that giant falling pink clock just is symbolism par excellence. I didn't realise Santa could be so, well, sexual. You know, I'm like, I know you're hardly a decent, but that's not impressing anyone. Sorry? You are, you're, you high? It's like fighting your way out of a bag of Cheetos, only much bigger. And then, right, this Cthulhu-type monster rose up and started tap dancing. Uh, I'm not sure that you could say in any given list that that was definitely one of the five greatest movies of the noughties, uh, or indeed of any decade, to be honest, there. You are having a joke. You are, you are seriously, no, this is, this is insane. Oh, come on, we've all done a gay prostitute at some point. It's part of the joy of being on holiday. That stroking muscle thing. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, look, right, I've never, obviously, as you know, walked out of a podcast halfway through, unlike certain people who are here. Justin! But right now, I am very, very close. How dare you bring this up? We're having a civil conversation, and you have the audacity to say that. I'm on the ledge. I don't care about life anymore. I'm going to throw myself off. None of you try to stop me. I think we may have to disagree on this one. Right, that's it. I've I've called up Dial a Restraining Order and you're all on the list, babies. You're all on the list. You better run. That's all I'm saying. You better run. I'm trying to remain calm, but it's very, very difficult. I hold in my hands everything you hold dear and love, and I'm wiping my ass with it, and I'm throwing it away. Oh, for Christ's sakes, a lot of you just pack it up. Now, I know that this is an audio broadcast, so people can't see this, but I am currently handling a semi-automatic weapon, because the Americans know that's how you get peace, more guns. Here's my tank, baby! Come on, bitches! I just wanted to tell you guys, I love you all. In the afterlife, eat hot lead! Oh, for God's sake! I'm just getting really fed up with this now. Are you actually threatening me? You're threatening me, are you? Right, okay. We'll see about this. You thought I was feeling cold because I was wearing this Mac today. Nope! Yeah, that's it! One false move, and you're all gonna die! I got enough C4 strapped to me to take out the whole block, baby! Elite suckers, you're all gonna die! <laughs> Didn't know I could fly a helicopter, did you? Get running, boys. I've got a minigun trained on you. Oh, yeah. Heat-seeking missile coming your way, Ian. I have been in contact with our alien overlords, and I've sold you all out. So, 
you may think they're just ordinary supply teachers, but no, I've reared them. They're cannibalistic and they're out for your blood. Weaponized! Tanks? <laughs> what happens if you stack tanks? That's right, a mobile castle, all populated with killer assassins, all trained since birth to kill you. I think you're all forgetting, gentlemen. I have the living dead! Fly, my alien brothers! Fly! Show them! Show them the evil that you possess! <laughs> Eat all their brains for my teachers! So the final battle lines are drawn. This will be our battlefield. Only one of us will survive. Spoilers! It's me! Remember, you are undead. They cannot kill what has already been killed. So go! Go! And kill! Destroy them all! I mean, uh, don't anyone get too touchy. It's just an opinion. <laughs> Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcasts. Gentlemen, we have a problem. It's time to begin our ascent through our top five films of the noughties, or the time period between 2000 and 2009 if you prefer. The rules, as always, are simple. The list is personal and therefore unquestionable in its authenticity. To celebrate this assertion of opinion over all known facts and better collective wisdom, when the 80s kids declare his or her choice, a merry tune will play to hail it forth like the golden snowflake of a participation medal. In the end, we're all winners, just for taking part. However, none of us know what anyone else has picked or in what order, so as you make headway into our list, it's possible we'll have a crossover. In the past, such events were considered upsetting, vulgar, unlikely a sign of moral decline. But that was back in the 80s or 90s. In these more enlightened post-millennial times, it's a positive cause for a three-day knees-up when two 80s kids have the same film pegged at the same rank, and we're all totally cool with that. It's rather like our gay marriage question. One must simply let go of fusty, archaic prejudices. To celebrate this synchronizing of two 80s kids picking the same film in the same rank, this hail of greater unity will sound. However, beware, for some sins are still too much even for the socially accepting 80s kids. For if an unwary traveller on our journey through the noughties should name a film that someone else has on their list, but hold it lower down their top five and therefore usurp another's higher regard for the movie, a sound of social awkwardness will play as we reflect on the ruinous path that led us to this dire state of affairs. 
in the unlikely but not impossible event that someone picks a film two other people share in the same rank but they themselves have placed it lower on their own personal list therefore triggering both unity and awkward sounds to play at once the episode will in fact explode do it just do it uh, for this event will mark the birth of a Sheila Buff monster who will stomp and rage and terror through the podcast. It's like crossing the streams, man. Just don't do that. However, top five lists should feel like you're playing with fire, so brave faces on people. That is the essence of the rules of the game. Today we're doing our personal top naughty films ranked 5, 4th and 3rd. Uh, uh, with all that in order, Mr. Stableford will begin proceedings with his patented person randomizer machine, uh, which will select the order in which we face our peers and lay our prejudices bare. Well, I must say that in the course of the podcast, it seems that the top five picking process has become a lot more dangerous. But perhaps that's because of the noughties and the way that they are. Let us soldier on. All the names have gone into the Internet hat. And the first one to be picked to share their number five with the group is Sue. So, Sue, what have you picked as your number five favourite film of the 2000s? I am... Pick something that I remember going to see in the cinema with you. Yeah. And Abby. Ah. And both of you coming out smiling. Right. So when a child comes out smiling and an adult comes out smiling, it has to be a good thing. I picked Monster House. Ooh. Explain further. What is the wonder of Monster House? I think it's got good crossover appeal because, as I said, if a child can come out smiling and then an adult comes out smiling as well and the jokes are appropriate for both <coughs> and it's done in a very good storytelling way, I think it's great. I love the the whole, you know, the house is his wife's soul and that kind of thing because that's, again, very... Interesting and could be quite a nasty thing, but actually is done in a way that's actually almost sympathetic to her and to him. I think it's just a good fun film. Even the the nastiest ideas that, you know, they are the house is eating people and things like that. It's not really. It's just putting them in a basement. <laughs> yeah, I have to say this is a pretty good pick from where I'm sitting. I, I seem to remember. I'm not sure, but. Uh, the thing about CG animation is, one, uh, and we have done this before on the show, when you think about CG, obviously having Justin in the room, there is an element of, well, back then, of course, they couldn't do the things that they could do now. So you look at the sort of the sophistication of the CG and therefore CG is uh, thought of dating fairly poorly. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, it is the replacement for animated features of old. But where these things really come forward is when they can become timeless because the way that they're made or what they're made or the subject or the writing or the story that they're telling is actually on a different level. So the shortcomings of the film technically in the future fade into the background next to the fact that the film itself is an amazing film. And Monster House, in my book, is an amazing film because it works on so many levels. It is kind of creepy and kind of scary. So it's like a little 
horror movie for kids, but at the same time, it is funny and it's not too bad, and the story isn't what you're expecting. I think it is, it's right up there. I mean, if you did like a Monster House Paranorman double, that would be amazing. You know, these are, uh, are things where they've used the animation and what, whatnot to make the, the film a better film or, or to make a film that might not work as well in live action and to explore subjects that maybe people don't normally explore in kids movies so yeah i'm totally down with this gentlemen monster house i've never heard of this movie until i never heard until i just googled it just now this is a new encounter for me so on the list it goes i suppose uh yes it's definitely worthwhile i wouldn't say it's on the top of your priority i haven't seen this film so watch it now list but it is definitely quite near the top it's good fun to get around to yes absolutely and justin uh yeah i remember watching this with you um oh yeah And um, again, I probably wouldn't have seen it because uh, I think at this stage we hadn't really got into the joy of CGI st- films as they are now because I was very suspicious of any I, at that stage that wasn't Pixar <clears throat> and being very pleasantly surprised by this. I really loved it. And actually, I, I'd almost forgotten about it and I probably need to watch it again, to be honest. Uh, fun fact, uh, <laughs> there is a an arcade machine in the, the story uh, called Thou Art Dead. And obviously it's a joke. It's like uh, ghosts and goblins and all that stuff and golden axe. And it's kind of a Rygar. It's kind of harking back to those. And, of course, pulling up the fact that arcade machines of yore were incredibly difficult. So the fact of the thing was that you were going to end up dead. Then someone went and wrote it as a flash game. And it was uh, exactly like it is in the the film. And it is incredibly difficult. Uh, So it feels like a fully authentic experience. So uh, you could go and hunt that out. It's a little flash game for people to look at. So, yes. So there we go. Kicking us off with a a mighty choice, I'd say. Monster House is unequivocally, definitely uh, something that should be on people's top five lists of the 2000s. So no contention there and no crossover. I'm wondering now if there's going to be a crossover for the random name picker has delivered unto me the fact that it's me. I am going next. Uh, and so I don't think this is going to be a crossover with anyone who's not sitting in the same room as me. But my number five favourite film of the 2000s is, of course, a film about a man who is a character in someone else's story. And also, uh. in real life, he's a comic actor who has never done a film of this emotional depth and breadth again, which is a great shame, because this is one of the reasons why I picked it. I am, of course, talking about Will Ferrell's amazing performance in Stranger Than Fiction. Yeah. Yes, uh, I was almost going to choose as a number five. Right. But but just you, slipped out. Just, just slipped out of my All right, so we are, we are safe again. it was my number six. Right, OK, so there we go. So I've, I've boosted it up a little bit higher, and it's now in the list. We have talked about this uh, before at a reasonable length, so I shall keep it short. But uh, maybe it's best then to concentrate on how, why it, it couldn't be pushed out of my list, because obviously you, I, I adopted the time-honoured tradition in my uh, top five picking of doing like a sort of a World Cup where I take I group the films into twos and then have them play off against one another. Now, one of the things about the 2000s was that the number of draws where I was like, I can't really put one of the this film against that film and pick a winner. So I'd have to remix the names up and have them play off against other films. And Stranger Than Fiction, it didn't surprise me that it wouldn't go away. Uh, because at the same time as being a, a sort of a, a romantic... At one level, it's a romantic comedy, but that's like 
a very, very low level. Mostly, it's a piece of metafiction about a man who understands that he's a character in a story. And actually, his character arc is all about finding out which story he's in, which then, of course, turns the camera around upon the audience and says, yeah, so what story are you going to be in? To what extent? I mean, the, the key proposition of strange in the fiction is fate versus free will yeah to what extent are we just characters in someone else's story e.g fate and to what extent do we shape the story that we're in e.g free will what a clever way to do that you can hear the narrator going through your voice and it, it, it distracts you and it makes you think about life and it changes you fundamentally to approach your life as a work of fiction and then of course you put in a character who's a professor of english that brings you to this point it's like this is why one we embrace stories but two we think about stories and we talk about stories because if we are in a story then it behooves us to look at what kind of story we're in this is something that is very dear to me it's a philosophy that i think isn't very popular generally speaking in the world i think that people think there's stories and then there's real life and never the twain shall meet but stories are part of real life and we are defined by the stories we tell and so how could i get rid of that from my top five i absolutely couldn't so uh, i think i've kind of waffled on about it before in the past on the podcast that was just bringing that philosophical angle right up to the fore anyone else have anything to add on stranger than fiction or those people who had it at number six uh sue it actually only just went out for me or because something else that i've picked is slightly more personal yeah okay so that was it so yeah it's a great film absolutely yeah. brilliant film so uh, great concept and it's just a shame really i mean it's a shame that we'll that he's so good in this because because then you can't dismiss him as someone who's just you know, on, only a comedian. As is of, often the case, comedians are often fantastic at drama. But we don't see any more of that. So it actually makes you think like, oh, now you're just kind of just playing it easy. Why aren't you taking on more of these roles? They're awesome. Yeah, I think that's definitely... I mean, Has I, Ian seen this film yet? I don't think you... Have you seen it, Ian? No, no, I haven't. But, uh, you know, comedy is hard work. Whereas tragedy is and highly sympathetic characters, it's it's essentially a joke without a punchline. Really, it's it's the set. so you can see why comedians are quite good at playing sad characters. Okay, the thing is, sometimes I don't like Will Ferrell trying to be funny, but sometimes I do. He's kind of patchy. Sometimes I I think it, I'm going along with it. Other times I don't. Jim Carrey's process, by contrast, of going through a number of dramatic roles informed the kind of comedies that he would do and the way that he played comedies and i you know if you look at the yes man he's got a much bigger range of being able to be funny in that versus some of his earlier movies so there we go so that is uh my number five which we talked about in the year when it came out which i think was 2006 at some length so uh we shall move on and find out who is next ian you are the third to, to bring forth your number five of the 2000s what have you picked well we're returning to the world of animation now i'm afraid everybody i'm not afraid i'm delighted to say we're returning to the world of animation i first saw this film or maybe 2002 saw that i was actually in uh, other justin's uh, living room as i sat upon the sofa and watched this delightful animation which i believe according to the great professor wikipedia is the highest grossing japanese film ever Mm, maybe uh, it is of course that delightful 2001 movie spirited away ah yeah. yes and now this just bizarrely 
there are definitely entrenched people who don't like Spirited Away. But I just went with it, and isn't it wonderful? I, I do like the thing about films that can take you away to somewhere completely different that is as evocative and imaginative. And you, you just come away with it filled with more ideas in your head than when you first went into it. And I'm not saying, like, concepts and things I've learned. No, just sort of... As, you, as you're finding your way in this world, things occur to you and those ideas chime with you and stay with you. It's, it's, animation is beautiful. It's the story of a girl, you know, goes and, whose parents are turned into pigs and then she goes off to a fantasy world and works in a bathhouse, pure, purifying spirits. And that's only the beginning of it all. It is just so a wonderful and evocative journey full of very memorable images and characters. And a boy with no memory, he was also a dragon. It's complicated. But I just be, remember being terribly fond of this movie and feeling very satisfied when it was all over. So, yes, uh, you've yeah. seen, seen, seen this, of course, of a new series. Yes, so, well, yes. uh, what, your thoughts? I, I think it's a nice movie. I think it's not, I think it's very, very Japanese though in its moral standings and its, its storytelling and the way that it does things. But so if you have some idea of Japanese culture and have watched other animes, you'll understand. But if you don't, it can be a bit what the hell. You yeah, know. I I agree. Absolutely. I, I think that um, the pacing is very, 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 very kind of well, obviously kind of Japanese and that. And it takes a little getting used to. I remember being blown away by it. But <laughs> you kind of look at it and you go, um, OK, this is this is not how Western animations kind of the story follows. <laughs> Uh, this touches on one of my favourite things, obviously. Through the looking glass? The f- no, no, I was just <laughs> no, going to say, no, just, <laughs> just generally favourite things. Generally. So the idea, one of the reasons why I hooked into uh, fairy tales over time, and but more specifically and recently, and come back to it, the, the fairy tale idea time and time again, is because... Even when a fairy tale may not be 100% successful, I'm looking at something like the recent Jack the Giant Slayer movie, it kind of has a power to suck you in. And that, I find that kind of weird and, and, and almost sort of dangerous. That fairy tale things tend to work out as long as the, it is clear that the people who created them went with it, as opposed to as soon as you start fighting against it, it can come out a little bit wonky um and spirited away i think got a lot of plaudits for that uh for crossing you know fairy tale and dreamlike and then you add in a bit of japanese and yeah i mean it's it's one of the best animated features that i think i've ever seen so yeah i mean certainly uh the fact that someone has brought it to the table here seems entirely appropriate and it does uh also hearten me that so far the three movies that we've encountered have all been not what you might call usual movies yeah. in the sense of so that you know we're already getting the flavor of the 2000s as being something a little bit different um so that just leaves in the the, the the realm of the the, the number five choice. Uh, Mr. Justin, are you going to continue this or are you going to bring us back to more generic grounds? What uh, is your number five, well, Justin? No, I'm, I'm going to continue because and I suspect this might this might feature some downwards list. I don't know, uh, possibly, because we are definitely still in the realms of fairy tale, uh, but a very adult type. This is Pan's Labyrinth. Ah. I'm, I'm, you're clear as far as I'm concerned. Good. Um, now, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is a, is a Spanish film. It's, it's, uh, it's Del Toro. 
I mean, obviously, he brings to the screen an incredible kind of artistic vision that, you know, you'll see again and again repeated in Hellboys and various things. So you get what is a kind of a magical but very dark, very dark fairy tale. This is actually about the nature of why we even think about fairy tales. You're, when you watch this, you think that you're watching this kind of Alice in Wonderland story. But actually, it's really about kind of begin to question whether actually what you're seeing is real and this isn't actually perhaps actually fairies but this is a an instrument that the, the central character uses to escape a horrible horrible situation and you get you know the dark i mean this is you know this is this is nazis in spain there's some pretty nasty scenes and then the the fairy land is an escape from that but then it's not exactly a safe place either um so you've got this wonderful tapestry of kind of fairy tales with a real bite and then very real you know situations horrible situations that just about against against that i mean i think it's just a beautiful film it's difficult it's really very difficult in places but it's one it's wonderful it's like i think how fairy tales should be that kind of dark and tinged with you know the dangers of the world i'm surprised we didn't have a crossover here sue it did not make your list it nearly did but the thing that took it off my list was its ending. Right. I have always said I love that film. I think it's visually stunning. I think it's absolutely brilliant. But I wish he'd gone full pelt for the ending that, you know, the stepfather walks through the bushes and there are the mystical beings. I wish he'd done it because to me, making it about her insanity instead kind of brought me back into reality of my life. So it was a bit like, no, I don't want that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want, if I'm going headlong into it, I want to go, I want to be down the rabbit hole. I, I think that there is a, 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 an, a, a thing with this thesis that fairy tales are about, or, you know, fairy tale worlds can be about escaping a grim reality. Has is It's a double-edged thing. And I think that the, the best fantasists realise this. Because the fairy tale world uh, that is presented is not, uh, should not be, in fact, an escape from a grim reality. Yeah, because it's, it it's is, grim. <laughs> no, it's like a reality that's more. It's yeah. like, I think that one of the things that what you're escaping from is this endless moral vacuum of real mundane events that and especially when you do talk about this is during the you know i think it was the spanish civil war yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that when a war is going on of that nature and people are doing terrible things but it's all dressed up in well they're this side want this and that side want that and all the political shenanigans of of real reality the fairy tale universe presents a place where black and white are blacker and whiter but that's very important. The fact is that evil in the fairy tale realm is actually far worse than anything you could imagine in reality because reality simply doesn't aspire to that level of evil. And so the idea that lazy fantasists are just trying to picture sort of an escape is somewhat off the the track because what you're really trying to do is separate out morality by putting it in fairly clearly defined and of course the whole point of there is no conflict inside a fairy tale universe except that when you try and separate things out like, like out like that they don't behave 
as you expect them right. to. And in fact, grey tries to reassert itself. So in reality, you have nothing but grey that tries to sort itself out into black and white. And in the fairy tale universe, you have black and white that keeps merging together into grey because that's the dynamic of those are the two worlds that we're talking about. So it has a much more subtle philosophical power, the fairy tale universe, than we originally ascribe it. So now that Ian can put that into a montage of drug fueled uh, mm-hmm. monologuing, can move on because I guess Ian, yes, you Ian still haven't picked it, it off the. You know, he's still got it on his shelf. I'm willing to bet. Well, have you seen <laughs> it now, Ian? No, of course I haven't. I'm busy making a podcast. Yeah. Well, there we go then. So you'll soon have time to see what all the fuss was about. It is. Um, it is dark, and I like that. It is very much immersive, and I love that. And it is visually stunning. But yeah, I just wanted a bit. I I was just egging for that little bit more. I wanted full immersion into that. Well, I think I think what I mean, if we take my thesis, which may not be perfect and people may argue against it. But what you're saying is when the person who's immersed in this world of complete gray and moral relativity emerges into a world where black and white are forced apart and then they only come together in the conflict and the drama it will ch- it will blow their mind yeah. and because his mind doesn't get blown it doesn't it's like well what's the point then yeah. he doesn't get anything out of it yeah. which and it's not a, that's not a punishment yeah. like to have your mind your world upended yeah. by seeing something you never thought could be is not a gift yeah so he doesn't it, in a way allowing him to remain in a world of moral relativity is not a punishment yeah so ooh that got a bit deep. Let's uh, see. Ian, are you going to keep taking us into deep places with your number four? Or, Ian, are you going to, in fact, get a spade out, or get a step ladder out and get us out of this philosophical cul-de-sac? What is your number four, Ian? Well, there's not much philosophy in my next film, I don't think. Again, it's a very personal choice. And again, it's a film I know there are entrenched people who just won't have it uh, and think it's terribly overrated. But for me, it left an impression. It's a... Uh, it's from the director of Ridley Scott, which is, you know, one of the most, what's the word, so evocative. I come out of, of those films he's made, and things just seem, and there's this more colour in the world all of a sudden, and I'm more aware of the sound around me. You know, he's so good at placing you in interesting and vivid places that you come out and think, oh, the real world is a vivid, interesting place. Maybe it helped because I saw this film in Bath, and walked out, and saw all the wonderful Georgian architecture as I walked my way back to my flat. I'm talking about Gladiator, I'm afraid, which I, well, I'm not going to apologise for. I thought it was a perfectly acceptable film. I thought it was quite exciting. It's always good to see the uh, rise and fall of a despot. Uh, it's a nice historical yarn. Uh, the soundtrack is brilliant, in my opinion, and uh, goodness me, I, I, it leaves uh, an emotional impression on you after you've seen it. Now you can all tear it a new one. Bye. <laughs> I was actually going to agree with you that the soundtrack is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's possibly one of the best soundtracks from that type of film ever. End of story. I also kind of have to go, well, actually, visually, it's quite a good film. Mm. You know, they try their best to make the Coliseum seem big and they try their best. To, you know what I mean? They try, they try to make authenticism. However... There's just kind of a lack of warmth and emotion for, for me. That's that's the only. It kind of leaves me a bit cold. Well, that's yes, it. obviously it's it's a very brutal film. I mean, just yeah. to further essay on a few other points, it was the first time we'd really seen Rome 
reborn in CGI as well. And these yeah. days, it's a bit more passe to see the sweeping overshot of the Colosseum. Uh, this was the first one. This is the first time Rome seemed to be reimagined the same way dinosaurs were. And so yeah. that was spectacular. Also... That's what I'm saying. Visually, it was great. I thought also, visually also, they did a brilliant job. Oliver Reed, uh, and Oliver Reed, and, and rather appropriately... I suppose the day after in which it was announced gay marriage is now illegal in the United States. Queer giraffes. So there we go. I possibly might need to watch Gladiator a second time. Because I keep having these thoughts about what my thoughts on the shortcomings of the film are. And then I think, well, when I saw Gladiator, I only saw it once at the cinema. I was sat right at the back, right up on the left. When you said that thing about him making an immersive world... Ridley Scott. When I think of other things he's done, I, you know, you're right there. Alien, Blade Runner, both of these immerse you in the world in which they take place. I mean, for God's sake, Hannibal immerses you mm. in this kind of quasi-medieval Florentian, Florentine kind of uh, nightmare with uh, sociopaths and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, definitely a, a true thing. But then I think of Gladiator. I'm like, I didn't really feel, I mean, these, these are the shortcomings that I came up with. Didn't feel immersed. When you say, I didn't actually think it was, it might be brutal, but it's not visceral. Yeah. I actually thought that yeah. the gladiator battles in Pompeii were better yeah. than the, uh, the, the ones in Gladiator. And of course, we've got Spartacus now, which I haven't watched yet, but people keep assuring me yes, it's good. fantastic and I should totally watch it. I, um, I, I suppose Gladiator was aiming for the PG-13 rating, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, not, that's not necessarily, a, I mean, you know, I think that uh, Pompeii got PG-13 in the States. I mean, let's not forget, of course, that also Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe made that blooming Robin Hood travesty so i'm not sure where i sit on it so i probably have to watch it again but i certainly probably didn't give it the full uh chance to be immersive because of the fact that when i went to see it it was still a thing and the place where i was watching it it didn't it didn't really do it for me as a as a cinematic experience so maybe i should watch it again in the quiet and see if i could take more out of it but the other thing is of course that these kind of historical epics and and what have you usually aren't shy about uh, being on screen for three hours now i'm not the first last one to ask for a cinematic experience that lasts three hours or more because you know toilet breaks and everything but i i almost felt a bit like i came out and went well, oh okay i feel i could have been there a bit longer and experienced a bit more and i think that's possibly where i i sat on it but this could be a number of things justin am i talking crazy talk <laughs> Actually, I really, I, I like, I mean, it was a big film, right? It was a big yeah, film. Huge. And, and actually brought back that genre, which we hadn't really seen for a long time. No one had seen a kind of historical epic like that. It was very much, you know, obviously it was going to be comparisons to, you know, as, as far back as kind of Spartacus and stuff. So yeah, to see that, and it looks, I mean, just beautiful. And I know they did a lot of research on, you know, the Colosseums and the fact that they had these, poles with the flat now you see it everywhere like you say there's like you know on tv and 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 various films of it. but that was like really they really looked into and they didn't really understand so there's a lot of research uh, as you'd imagine really really tends to kind of go into these things we've got to go quite quite deep uh, yeah i mean it's just you know it's what it is it's a big sprawling thing a great cast yeah i mean it was a big film i mean i i have to say this is not really one of my favorite genres i don't i'm not for the massive epic kind of historical thing but my god it's a it's a fantastic example of it i mean they you know it's it's you see you see i remember kind of jaw dropped you know you did see rome 
as you imagine when you you know looking through drawings and stuff in the past and there it was brought to life um so yeah i mean great a great example of that type of film absolutely there you go ian we all actually didn't mind it that much <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good it's, we're it's, not gonna rip it to shreds we're not gonna rip said, it to shreds I, I just remember everyone seeing rather underwhelmed when it when it came up in like the 2000s it's, it's it's not my thing so it was i mean i like history to be history because i'm doing a history degree and i like pure history yeah she can't stand pompeii um, I thought it was hilarious. I thought, how oh, we really got into that? Yeah. I'd rather go and watch a documentary about, oh, yeah, the, yeah, about yeah, totally. the artifacts in the Pompeii than actually watch a film about Pompeii. Well, I, just... I watch a film in which uh, Keith Sutherland chews all the scenery. And then some. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that kind of thing where it's... It's a good job it wasn't case. historical because there would be no artifacts left. He would have eaten them all. <laughs> 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 there'd, be no, there'd be nothing. He'd have chewed everything. Oh, <laughs> uh, marvellous. It's such a crazy But it's film. that kind of thing. It's it, I'm not a big epic sprawler <laughs> fan, but for an epic sprawler it's 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 up there it's one of the better ones so yeah, yeah absolutely so uh now is this time to move on and, and we've gone we're going from really really big and i think we might be crossing over into this is where the dangerous waters are for me in my list i think i i'm, I'm almost anticipating a, a crossover noise at this point uh we're going from you know the the elephants and the swords and the ancient world and all of that drama and what have you to something that's really inside people's heads and is a little bit more monochrome and is more about asking those Philip K. Dick questions of who am I and am I this person really and why do I suddenly want to drink scotch and take up yachting? Because, of course, uh, my number four is the fantastic techno-noir science fiction film Cypher. Mm. No, nobody no. has it. Classic over. Well, I had a feeling you talk about this. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, this is the thing. We have, I mean, what, the thing that I want to bring to people's most attention most about this movie is the uh, amazing lead, uh, Jeremy Northam. What's really strange about it is that Jeremy Northam did quite a lot of work at the time when he was uh, when he was in uh, Cipher, and then thereafter did less and less work to the point where he's almost not working at all at present, which is, uh, to my mind, bonkers and completely the opposite way round than it should be. Because this is just, you know, between this and the Enigma, I think, Enigma is it called, the, the code-breaking film, in which he plays uh, Alan Turing, I believe. It might be Alan Turing. Oh, in the not the one that was recent. At the time, there was one. Oh, okay. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah based yeah. on a book, Enigma, as well, I think. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So that, basically, he's in those two. And across those two roles, he, he shows everything. In this film, he goes from nerdy businessman to suave James Bond-esque secret agent. And, and through all the kind of mental breakdown and sort of identity questioning stages in between and it, it also kind of puts the stage you know what what if being an undercover espionage operative was like working for some really boring company where you just went to a load of incredibly dull business presentations and you know last time you went to one of those where it was like death by powerpoint what if you know you were so intent on the powerpoint and then they pumped some gas into the room and someone come and puts electronic spiders on your face what if that happened eh how would you even know because of course they'd program you to forget wouldn't they ah it has satire it has action it has everything that you could possibly want and and i think one of the things that i got went away from it with most was the idea that this is basically a spy movie but they didn't want to do like 
a governmental spy movie. They wanted to have all the espionage, but they didn't want it to be about explosions and terrorists. So they made it about business. And that's one of the key genius things in this movie. Not only that, but it's, it's a very low budget movie and doesn't actually have that many people in it. And to evoke this world full of shadowy conspiracy uh, with only like seven or eight actors, like proper actors in the whole thing, is damn impressive too. Plus, that sweet helicopter. So, yeah, for everyone, Cypher. You, uh, so far, have a trend of searching for identity and your place in the world with your films. This is a, a, a real question of who are we and where are we going and what it's all about. Uh, yes, I, of course, saw this with you, so I was there at the genesis of our appreciation of this film and how it all neatly ties itself together uh we talked about it quite a bit at the time i think we went through it because we pulled up as a, as a notable film for the year uh so yes a jolly good espionage fun had by all and just the way they kind of took a different angle on him everything gets a slightly different angle than you normally see in quote-unquote an espionage film like we talked about before like when they go to the data storage area that is just like this under underground vault full of moving metal segments or whatever I, I seem to recall it and that's like that's not how you think about a data storage server really is it but it just sort of sums up how this film just takes it uh, puts a different take on the guy who who's really a secret agent story happening well it's that that thing of appending the word evil to the beginning of something if you say uh, i'm just popping down a server room because i need to reboot one of the servers then that sounds very boring but if you say i've just got to pop down to the evil server room well then you have to picture what the evil server room looks like and apparently <laughs> it looks like that rebooting the evil server yes i'm rebooting <laughs> the evil server well, maybe if we just didn't do that, we could just not have any evil. No, we, we had an evil exception error and it crashed, I'm afraid, so. I mean. Uh, no, no, the, the, the evil server crashed because of a guru meditation error. Sorry. <laughs> no, anyway, I think it's a great film. Yes. I'm glad you chose it. I have a suspicion that you would do, um, because you've, you've, uh, you've long talked about it, uh, and how much you admire it. Yeah, I, I, I remember watching this. It was on like late one night and just sat there and like, what the hell's this? I've never heard of this. My normal suspicion kind of comes down. Oh my God, this is going to be utter trite. And then going, wow, why did I not know about this film? Yeah, that was a thing. I mean, I don't know why they decided to pay to have bus adverts uh, around London on the weekend of its release. But that's the only reason that me and Ian actually heard about it and wanted to go and see it. Because we saw, and we actually had to do some research because we saw it on the side of a bus where that looks cool. I've never heard of that. What is it? And then we had to, I don't know, we may have gone and looked in a, like, time out, like, gone into a news agent. You know, it says it's a science fiction movie. We should totally go and see that. That's how it, it was a complete set of random coincidences. Yeah. So yeah, they didn't push this movie at all. Uh, you don't like it, do you? So you're going to sit there with your watering can of tepid water. I, I think it's brilliantly acted. I find it too heady for me. But that's because it is very I, heady. I don't really do espionage in the first place. That's not my thing. I don't do spies and things like that. And then there's all this complicated, aren't I so clever headiness going off over the top of it. Now, again, I'm an immersive person. I like to go into what's going off. And I do think it is quite immersive. But for me, it's just that tad bit too heady. Just a little bit. I, I Again, I kind of need a little bit more insanity and a little less aren't we clever you know, no, it's... 
Yeah, it is. I mean, to be fair, I always say it is pretty pat when you get down to the end of it. But that's the thing. I mean, I think one of the problems with the, oh, it, it turns out that people aren't really who they think they are. You're automatically in that realm of, well, this had better be bloody impressive when you get to brilliant the answer. Act, brilliant acting in it. Some of the best acting I've seen. So. And, and the story does actually, in the end, make sense. Yeah. And I think so there's a lot of... I can't of, actually fault yeah. it for what it is as a film. It's just not my kind of genre. It's not my yeah. thing, so... That. So there we go. But not yes. pouring tepid water on it because I don't. I think it's a bad film. I'm, pour, I'm just having to go. It's not really my thing. Sorry. So that is that is cipher. That is my number four. Uh, I, I'm not apologising for it. Uh, and indeed, apparently, I don't have to. The next person to go on this number four uh, whirly gig tour is, according to the random name picker. Justin, so Justin, what is your number four? I've, I've kind of chosen stuff that has really shaken me up and made me kind of think, wow, I've, I've not, <clears throat> I've not seen that again. Or I've not seen that on screen or various things. So I, in the realm of sci-fi, my number four is uh, District Nine. Ah. Mm. Which, um, I don't really go, I need to go over this too much. We have talked about it, I think, in the past. Um, but in terms of sci-fi, I hadn't seen this done ever before. This was, you know, blending kind of sci-fi with kind of political comments. It was just kind of fantastic. And I loved the look of it. I mean, I know all about the history of the film and the fact that it was, you know, it was going to be a Halo movie. And so they had all these fantastic props that Weta had designed already. So it kind of, you, you, it's almost unexpected, really. You suddenly have this, what looks like a quiet little film and then it just has all this stuff. The alien designs are fantastic. I often talk about them when I do my character design course because they have certainly the main characters, the central kind of Manahani's child. They have such emotion they, they can portray in what essentially are kind of insectoid kind of life form. Uh, but the way they are designed allows them to be incredibly flexible and emote. And you have to really care about this because, you know, the main human, the humans in this don't look too great. And so there's a lot of sympathy towards the to the alien in visitors. So it's very important that the main characters you really care about and want them to escape from this kind of hellish life that they've got living on Earth. So so I thought they did a fantastic job of that. I think it's 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 really kind of dark and goes places that you wouldn't really expect. It's not really a big science fi spectacular, you know, in the way that we've seen before. Um, and yet those trappings are there in terms of, you know, there's a big there's a big robot suit and there's spaceships and everything else. But this is not the sci fi that you would have grown up with. This is a very, you know, grown up uh, thing. And for that reason, I love it. Cool. I remember going to see this and thinking, oh, that's good. That's very good. And, you know, you know, the provenance of it is like a sort of a, sorry, we were going to do Halo, but then we didn't kind of thing. And I watched it and I was like, hmm, this is, a, this, you know, this is good. There is a potential here for greatness. And as this came six years ago at this stage, that greatness has yet to be delivered. And so that's kind of giving it a strange place in film history in that both Charlto Copley and, and the director whose name temporarily escapes me, uh, but he did Elysium as well. And now, no, it's not helping. But yeah, both of these figures who were central to the generation of this, Charlto Copley was identified immediately. What an amazing actor. And indeed yeah. he is. But again, he hasn't really gone on to do anything that eclipses this performance, just as the director, a Sh- uh, Chappie came out earlier this year to much, hmm, ah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's where this is uh, starting to, carve out its place in history you can't top it yet and yet 
sitting down to watch it, I was like, something is going to come along and just raise the game on this. And maybe we were too optimistic because it hasn't happened yet. But I think that's the only reason that, I mean, you know, this is obviously something that over time is is coming to be an important part of the culture in retrospect. And I think that's the way it is. You need a few years distance sometimes yeah. to see something in its true context. So, yeah. And I still think that there is a possibility that at some point something's going to come out and just be like, OK, that's that's raised the game and, and brought this kind of I think it's a sort of a, a bizarro sci fi. You know, sci-fi tends to be shiny or tends to be very, as Sue puts it, heady. And District 9 is less. I think it's more about being out there it's than it is. It's actually very emotional. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. Because it's fundamental frame story is very political and emotional. And it, that comes across very well in the film. It, the way that it's kind of challenging our perceptions of humanity, if you get what I mean. Yeah. That, that's very upfront and raw with this film. So yeah, it's much more emotional. I think, I mean, I think that's possibly where the, the, the mistakes have come in because the, the sort of the science fiction as it's gone forward or that science fictional theme has actually rolled back downhill to be more in that area of questioning things more rationally. I think that's probably where most bizarro sci-fi attempts have brought a, you know, sucked the big one. Jupiter Ascending, looking at you, is that you've really got to get into that headspace where it's a little bit lunatic and they don't, they don't push it there. They stick with the science fiction tropes and the safe science fiction areas and District 9 doesn't do that. So yeah, worth it for that. Ian, any thoughts? Uh, yes. I mean, this director, yes, he, he has done, was it now three science fiction films basically? It's interesting how he kind of does them in a kind of very non-standard, non-Hollywood kind of way. I think this is probably the most of them. At the end of the day, even though uh, Matt Damon is, you know, irradiated and dying, he does have a suit that gives him essentially superpowers. Uh, and I haven't seen Chappie yet, but the DVD has arrived, so it will be watched at some point. So at, at the moment, and I, I, I kind of glean. Get back to that in six yes. or seven years then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, this will be next weekend. There is a, there is a DVD date arranged for it already. Go, going from the trailer and the write up, I kind of have a feeling about how Chappie is going to go. But District 9 stands as the one that is totally different from what we expect from Hollywood. Justin's right. There, there are no sympathetic human characters really in this film as far as I can remember. Uh, even the guy he was, you know, nominally the, the protagonist is a coward and you know works for his father-in-law and is kind of pushed into the situation he's in due to his exposure to the alien goo uh, and yes ends the film kind of an out, kind of an outcast as i recall some really nice ideas here it's it's alien it's the alienation idea again but it, it's so gritty and so sad it's probably how it's going to go woo aliens ooh, lots of aliens ooh, uh internment camps please and then kill their children uh, so on that kill their children note, we turn to Sue and say, what is your number four? Right. I noticed a theme with my list that I have kind of gone really sideways off the idea of the normal genre that we do. This film could be taken as romantic comedy. However, I think it has some right to be in this genre section because it's got a little mystically sci-fi edge going off. Oh, God, However, it's not uh, Villa Sky, well, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a bit weirder than that. It's what women want. Oh, ah, goodness me. Course, right. 
It's rather naughty, my goodness. Yes. And it's the idea of that, you know, a man reading a woman's mind and kind of this whole thing of, oh, we're going out and exploring the universe and we're going out and exploring the sea and doing all of this stuff and we can't figure out what the girl next to us wants. And that kind of, you know, that kind of somehow he gets some supernatural ability that kind of gives him the ability to start understanding women in ways that most people wouldn't. And I, I find it quite, I, I think it's heartwarmingly funny. I, I'm not a massive Mel Gibson fan and I don't particularly like him as a person, but this one I think he's kind of charming in. Yeah, I just kind of think it's fun. I think it's kind of that fun end of things that I kind of wanted with that, and that's why it's there. So, yeah, sorry, it's funness. It's another one of these films that come along from time to time where nobody's paying attention to something, and so they manage to get something that's actually pretty subversive Mm. under the radar because that's not what the studio are looking at. So they don't spot it because they're thinking, hey, it's a Mel Gibson vehicle and and he's got to be wacky and funny and then there's got to be a romance and blah, blah, blah. And as long as it checks all those boxes, this sort of weird gender commentary. And the thing about it is that when I've watched this movie, that's the point. Somewhere along the line, I don't understand quite how this this works out for for Mr. Gibson, but they really get this idea of one of the things where when you're a writer, you do become sensitive to the idea of portraying people accurately because a good story is one where all the characters behave in a way that everyone can accept and a bad story is one where they don't. And when you look at, you know, all the kerfuffle about things like Riddick, where it's like this is misogynist because even the woman isn't acting like you know a woman agreed to act during this girl not didn't go no that's not going to fly dudes some for some reason didn't point out the glaring horribleness of the whole thing uh, whereas in this one uh, the writers clearly did just put in women's thoughts and what's really subversive is that women don't at all think like anything that you would expect them to given Hollywood. They're just people who have thoughts. And that's the thing. Mel Gibson's character in this movie is made to appear foolish and ridiculous. And most of the source of the comedy comes from the fact that until he gets, you know, this hairdryer in the bath incident gives him the power to hear women's thoughts. He's kind of, yeah, yeah, he thinks he's a a hit with the ladies. Mm -hmm. And then he suddenly realizes that women just think, you know, I should get some eggs on the way home. And that's the big revelation to him is that women don't exist in a world that revolves around men. And not only that, but they also don't exist in kind of a world where he has to be competitive or alpha male-ish to impress them. But what would really impress them is if you say, oh, you seem to have two bags of uh, groceries there. Can I just carry one for you? I'll leave it at your desk and then walk off. Because instead of doing it because you're being an alpha male, you just hear a go, oh, God, I'm going to spill this everywhere and then I'm going to look like an idiot. You go, let's save this person for themselves. This is where women's favourite... I will let the other guys say something in a minute but i think the thing that got me in this film was the suicidal girl yes i was gonna say finally gets it that actually he he has to care about somebody yeah you know he has to i totally agree so i was gonna i was gonna bring that up actually that that's the would raise this from just a silly romantic comedy um that's the thing i remember from it it's like 
in the end, yes, that's really what he needs to use his power for. Yeah. Because he knows what she's going through and then he saves her. And and that actually is generally that's an emotional, really emotional part of that. Yeah. And the fact that he just dismisses, he's not, he dismisses this, you know, the secretary who's going through all this stuff because, you know, he's not, he's not interested in working that as an angle or whatever. So she's just enough, no one to him. Yeah. Uh, and, and the fact that she's got all this hidden, you know, anguish and stuff that he actually gets to eventually see. And I, yeah, I, I, that's what I carry away from the film, actually. It's nothing to do with the romantic comedy with that. I thought actually that was a surprising twist. Well, again, there's layers to that because the whole point is that what, what he, comes to understand is that sometimes you just see a person who's going through you know some bad stuff and without any agenda as another person you go around and go you don't need to do this we we, will accept you starting with me the world is just going to accept you and i have no real agenda for this other than to say hi and i'm going to go but don't worry about it things are going to work out and it's that idea that at the beginning of the film, his character would never say anything without some kind of an angle. Mm. And really, it transcends the idea of what you originally think of as being like, it's a wacky screwball battle of the sexes, to being, well, no, even at that level, any segregation you make, when it's when people are just people to one another. That's the, Ian's the point. Ian's been quiet, Ian. <laughs> well, people are talking, and they want to barge in. And That's right, so, no, no. barge in. Come on. Barging in. Um, look... When, when this film came out, uh, a friend of mine who is a woman who saw this, and she's she's a bit kooky, but she, she was like, oh, this is so true. This is just what it's like, especially th- there's a jogger or something, and she's yeah. thinking about seven different things. Like, Yes, it's just like that. Well, even though I, I did have a friend who said that, I later on heard read, read an article from Femist who was trashing it, oddly enough, for, for, for perhaps cliches of how women think, apparently, which I didn't quite get i mean i was my negative point would be oh women are people this is a revelation to us my goodness how depressing yeah it, it's, well, you it's, know, it seems self-evident it's it, apparently this is the case it's, it shocks me from time to time that apparently this point still needs to be stressed why do you write such interesting female characters well because writing dull female characters didn't quite appeal to me somehow you know <laughs> It, it just baffles my brain, but at the same time, I'm, I'm like, I'm a bit, I'm a bit off when a male's basic character journey is he learns to realize women are people and, and get on their page. That seems to be like, ah, oh. it's so many romantic comedies seem to be about the man realizing to be less of a dick and more considerate to, to the woman in his life. And, and, and that's like, oh, I'm so over, kind of over this, this character arc of the dumb man learning to, learning to appreciate women for being humans so my violent cynicism comes i I understand because i think it's difficult for you because actually you're quite a good human you as a man you as a a man are actually quite i'm talking to three men who are very very in touch with the idea that women are human beings and are very humanistic However, I have been around a lot of men I mean, who yeah, well, are still like that. I think, so, yeah, I bit... think that, that, yeah, I mean, the point is that what you have to do is take the measure of the fact that the yeah. day that we don't need these is the day when if some guy advertises that he's going to, for just a, a mere thousand dollars, teach another bunch of men to pick up women in bars and sleep with them and then yeah. cast them aside the men would go why would we want to do that yeah. and he wouldn't be able start, to make as, as soon as all of them start going yeah. what yeah if i put an advert in the papers that said how to meet women in bars chop them up with machetes and bury them in the woods <laughs> then people would be like yeah that's not right dude yeah 
But people say that price. Yeah, that's a bit much. Yeah, a bit excessive. But, yeah. but uh, yet at the same time, the kind of emotional abuse, date rape kind of thing. I know that's fine. We, you know, yeah. that's a thing. It's a free market. People are allowed. It's, it's like it's while we're still in a world like that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, well, the minute that that would be the same reaction for both. Whereas, why would someone pay for that? Uh, why is I that even a thing? That's that's always going to be a problem so long as men want sex more than they actually want to make the effort to get to know women, and that's always going to be tension that's there I yeah think. and i think that i mean you know my personal opinion is that that's a journey just a, you've brought up another yet another <laughs> philosophical can of worms opened yeah. up here but it's just, a massive philosophical yeah. can. i mean it's interesting because entourage the movie came out a couple of weeks ago and that in in its marketing promotion said yes all men want to live a lifestyle where they drive a fast car to a fancy club and then have anonymous blonde women throwing themselves this is every man's dream and the marketing oh, straight faced said that I was like, no, no. And when it's, did you yeah. see it was on YouTube at the moment? It's the advert that's popping up. It's really obnoxious. It's the guy standing behind two Lamborghinis going, you see these? I got these. One of the secret drop out of college. It's, it's yeah. really galling. It's like, I just don't yeah. want a fast car. F off. Yeah. When people, yeah. So when people get past that, when they realize that, yeah, I mean, I think people are more and more realizing that having two Lamborghinis and a bunch of bling is uh, not the path to happiness when they also realize when men realize that this idea that picking people up and having one night stands also is you could be doing so many yeah. other things yeah, sudoku I can, I can for example says I you can know understand why Ian, though, yeah because, i know because ian and justin and yourself are all three very you know decent guys it it could be a bit galling. Yeah. Uh, so there yeah, we go. But I, I, I still think that that's a perfect. Yeah. It is a. It's, a, it's an above the a, a cut above uh, silly romantic. Well, rough, you know, it's uh, it's 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 pick, pick up culture. I suppose if it's some twenty year old guy, we know no dependence, nothing to fix him down whatsoever. Mel Gibson in this film is like a forty year old dude. He really should yeah, know better by this point. Yeah, for the yeah. daughter. Yeah. No, but know better. Way, yeah. It's called Arrested Development. They have a name for that. I mean, for God's sake. Yeah. So uh, we, we should we should probably, we, 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 yes. if we keep going, we're going to get into a circle of depression. So, Justin, lift us out of this and tell us, uh, in our final pick for this show, what is your number three uh, greatest film of the noughties? Well, so my number three is Up. Ah. Thank you to Animation. Now, I have to say, again, this is one of those films where you, you go in, uh, uh, like my other choices, really, you kind of go in expecting, not really expecting what you get. And it's really up, what I'm talking about, is the first ten minutes. Anyone who's seen it will know this. I have to say, I think it's the most beautiful, emotional ten minutes that I've seen on screen, period. I mean, it just is uh, breathtaking, the rest of the film is fun. Don't get me wrong. It's kind of fun. And, you know, um, I think I've quoted the kind of squirrel line a few times. Say, I was just going to say squirrel. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, 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 it's great fun, you know, and, and that's what it is. But I think that's an, a counterpoint to that. But it is it's just beautiful. And I sat there and I think I'd said to the, whoever I was seeing that this is like, this is incredible, really. I mean, we're, we're looking at a load of pixels on screen to be that moved emotionally by something that kind of touches your heart that much just shows you really what animation can do i mean it is just beautiful there we go cool ian, uh, ian thoughts on up i haven't seen up i'm afraid although i understand Ooh, right i have heard many a times for many sources the first 10 minutes are awesome 
So maybe I shall watch the first 10 minutes and then I can, then I can feel the rest of it. I'll just read on Wikipedia. So there we go. (laughs) The rest of it's worth watching as well. The rest of it's good fun, but the first 10 minutes are emotionally just heart pulling in every way, shape and form. I I feel that I'm just still there. Yeah, he's still here. I I feel that I should step in on behalf of the rest of the movie. Now, it is true that there is a bit of a problem, a bit of a hump. It's a bit like um, the old uh, true romance problem where there's that one scene in the trailer and then the rest of the movie is like, well, you've kind of seen it now. But I would actually argue that there's a, a very important point to be made here about the fact that when... At the end of the movie, or at the end of the movie, after the first ten minutes, so yeah. at the beginning of the movie, after the, the entire prologue, movie, yeah. Um, what it kind of goes to a length to say is that if they'd have done that at the time, if there was a, a thing that had been realised in the moment that you have some kind of remorse or regret or sadness about not realising it. It would have been just as bizarre and random and odd and full of weird, unexpected kind of lumpy bits as it was when it was eventually done as a tribute that reality cannot hope to match up to fantasy. And in a way, the first 10 minutes of all the things not done says, yeah, but if those things had been done, they wouldn't have been like they were thinking that they would do them. They'd have been something else entirely like dogs with weird hats on that make them go squirrel and giant zeppelins and or and strange little ginger kids in scouts uniforms hanging around your house <laughs> and just all of this stuff and you'd be like well when i had a dream of what this was going to be like this wasn't it and and really what it says is yeah but that was always going to happen when you decide i'm going to go to bora bora today and you get on the plane you fly out there and you get there and you go crap why did i come here but but the point is it's like then you get back and then after a little bit, it bakes into your head and go, well, I'm glad I did it, because if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't have done it, would I? And and, and that's the thing. It's like it, it introduces to everyone this idea that whenever you commit to do something, the doing of the something is necessarily going to be different. In some ways, it will be better because it will be real as opposed to an imagined thing, which is not real. But there are going to be ways in which it's just... That was weird. I don't even know why that happened. I don't know why that was coming into my, you know, my dream thing, but it did, uh, and it won't behave. So I think there is an element to that where it is very important that this sort of dreamy emotional moment is the first 10 minutes of something that then goes on to be something else. Because if it existed in isolation, I can imagine that people would be like, well, it's a bit saccharine, isn't it? It's, where it's the fact that what comes after is the realisation of something and then eventually the realisation that the dream was never going to be real, even and maybe to a certain extent it was better as a dream. Because when you were made it into reality, it would have been something you actually did. And then you'd remember bizarre stuff. And then maybe you get some nostalgia as a consolation prize. But the great unrealized thing remains in its awesome might forevermore because it never happened. I don't know. That's just a... A perspective Leo, Leo's on, on a really philosophical tip today. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just how I roll, you know. Uh, I, I agree. You know, you can't. I, I, it's not like oh, that ten minutes is fantastic and the rest is okay. I mean, the whole thing works together. It's just boy, that ten minutes is amazing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it's down to. It's like the whole thing is great, but wow, that is something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it crams a whole emotional life in ten minutes. And yeah. That's, yes. 
that's why it's so powerful. Mm. Yeah. So uh, staying with uh, philosophy and uh, uh, things like that, because that is my my bag, in case you hadn't identified that, it is now time for me to share with you my number four uh, film of the year. Now, of course, you have all consulted your number various four, three. three. Sorry, my number three. Uh, say, you, you completely threw me then. Deja vu, which yeah. is a very We're important thing to say. <laughs> which is a very important thing to say here. You've all complete, uh, yes, consulted your various computers and your varnished pieces of wood. <laughs> and on your varnished pieces of wood, you have already discovered ahead of time that I must be captured and placed into suspended animation before I pick as my number three minority report. Brilliant. This this film is is peerless for several reasons, not least for the fact that when it it's one of those films, it's like Blade Runner. When it came out, everybody kind of shrugged and went, "What's so great about that?" And as time went on, it kind of sits in history, going, "What's so great about me?" Just just think about it. I'll wait. I'll still be here when you realise. Holy crap! This is one of the best science fiction movies that has ever been made. Uh, and it's so rewarding as well to note that, you know, Steven Spielberg wanted to learn at the knee of Stanley Kubrick, did AI, it was terrible, and then he did this. And this was the point where it's like, I am Steven Spielberg and I am channeling the Kubrickness straight through me. But yet the thing about Kubrick is that Kubrick can be very technical and very cold. And Spielberg was never going to be that cold. And so he simultaneously melds this obsessive level of technical excellence and detail with a kind of a warmth and an emotionality that doesn't come through in Kubrick. So he, he kind of squares himself and Kubrick into one movie. So how can this have been a failure? I mean, that's one of the big puzzles of this movie. This movie takes two of the giants of the previous several decades of cinema, melds them into one and makes this perfect experience. You also get to see Tom Cruise, who has this whole strand of his career where he likes to do smart, intelligent science fiction and bring himself into this, absolutely at the top of his game a place that he wouldn't reach again till another movie that people are going to look back on in a few years ago. Wow, that film is awesome. Why wasn't that huge? That being Edge of Tom. But in this case, he's and Edge of Tom is far more. He plays that sleaze bag and then he comes around. Whereas this has the much more complex and far less easy character arc of the guy's a wreck, kind of, but a, a golden boy at the beginning. And by the end, he's not a golden boy anymore and he hasn't really got any less wrecked. But he has knowledge and he has certainty. And again, he's wrestled with this idea of fate versus free will. If you can see that someone's going to do something, is it right to arrest them even before they've actually done it? And and all of this kind of stuff. And it brings all of these things into play and, and the way that human beings treat human beings and how it's not necessarily a good thing to have a superpower because some people with superpowers have massive healing factors and adamantium skeletons and get to race around the place beating up bad guys but other ones get captured in a net and then put permanently locked into some kind of weird fish tank and treated like some kind of dolphin all of these things come into play and i think it's a beautiful kind of construction the other thing is it's an amazing world building exercise in this one character's journey from the head of the pre-crime division right down into the sort of cesspool of the underbelly of this shiny modern utopia you see everything you can imagine the whole world and what's really scary is that they did all this kind of production design where they asked actual designers, you know, in 
30, 40 years time. What do you think roads and cars and all this stuff is going to be like? And they drew it. And those cars, the, the further away we get from the movie being new, the more it's like, now we've got cars that park themselves soon. Uh, now in the UK, self-driving cars are legal. We're heading towards some parts of this minority report future. And it's not actually just sci-fi rubbish. I think that the rocket boots are probably a step too far, but hey, everybody gets some artistic license. So for these reasons, the Mar- Marvelous sci-fi spectacle that is Minority Report is my number three. I'm saying I'm very pleased you chose this. That it so nearly went in. I tried to have a mix of things and it so nearly went in because I think Minority Report is definitely, I mean, it's definitely one of my favourite films. It's brilliant. The, like you said about the design, spot on. When you watched it, it just seemed very credible. It just, I know that they'd, they'd, they'd done all these kind of things and looked into it. Also, they did a very sensible thing. Like a lot of science fiction of the past has made a terrible mistake in setting things not farther up away. But, you know, like it's always like 30 years, you know, I'm looking at you kind of back to the future. Or I know that's a, a little bit jokey, but even things like Blade Runner, you know, didn't push it too much. And so they actually go, well, no, this is like 2080 or something. So you're looking at it going, well, okay. And I mean, it's probably pushing it a bit what you can do, but, but the technology is like, yeah, I can see that evolving. I can see those things. It's not, um, it's not too much. I mean, obviously there's a bit of a leap in faith involved, but it, it seemed like a very credible, you know, certainly a very credible science fiction future that was possible. So, so, so you, you immediately immerse into the world and the story is fantastic. I mean, you know, it's got the more kind of running through it as well with the kind of mystery and the kind of thriller aspect of it. So I'm going to love it anyway. But yeah, great. And one of, you know, one of the few Tom Cruise films that I like. It's, um, we commented on this before, how much of a trendsetter it was for the whole kind of manipulate your computer interface with your hands moving, expanding yep. things out. Oh, yes. take all that, I mean, look at your iPads today where you can manipulate the screen with your hands. It's so kind of, oh, how prescient. I mean, also quite the fact that he never does find out what actually happened to his son. That's still an unknown outcome. Yes. Almost certainly dead. Don't know who. Don't know what happened. Which is terribly real. But for me, uh, the central quandary of the film, I suppose, it, it, should you lock someone up for a crime you have predicted they're going to commit, is is one I I did find a bit kind of, well, the answer is kind of no. I mean, in the, in the film's setting... Premeditated murder has disappeared, so we're down to crimes of passion. So it's, it's, it's easier to say no in those circumstances because clearly this is not fated to happen because you're able to intervene and stop it. So I can, I, I applaud them for their interventionist, uh, law enforcement. I, I approve of that. It'd be nice if some police came around and buzzed some people next to my house when they think of breaking into it. I'm not sure about locking people up for crimes they were going to commit. I, I somehow feel that would never get law anywhere that had a constitution of some sort but apart from that it is a obviously a very clever film has it has a proper science fiction concept at the center of it they properly explore it which is always a thing that i like it's nice when they do one of these high concept films at the end of it it's like there cannot be a sequel they've pretty much done that idea it's now finished let's all move on and think of something else to do that's equally as cool Indeed. I mean, I, I would uh, just like to point out as well, one of the things that uh, has occurred to me when re- recalling this film is that many of the sort of 
episodes, scenes, if you like, like the bit in the, uh, the, the apartment, the whole opening sequence with the guy in the house and he gets back and he finds his wife cheating on him. And then even the doctor in her house full of mad plants and the other doctor, you know, the I one who lives in the sort of <laughs> slummy tenement block. Each part is like this complete creation that implies and extends the central themes of the movie's world. And that is uh, something that, that is very rare, that sometimes movies are coherent, but very rare is it that these are entire uh, sort of episodic visual moments that yet uh, build up the, the theme. So I just wanted to mention that as well. Sue? One of my favourite Tom Cruise films. Yeah. It's in my top five Tom Cruise films. In fact, I think it's probably number three on my list of Tom Cruise films. Well, there we go. Again, I sometimes have a problem with the headiness and the action of it all, but I actually kind of like the drama of it. I like that kind of, how can I put it, grasping things and yeah. trying to put things together, if you get what I mean. And I like the fact that there's this other agent who's kind of watching him suspiciously anyway, because they're kind of going, yeah, he's up to something. What? We don't know, but he's up to something. So, yeah, it kind of gets very interesting and entwined. So, yeah, I kind of I like the film. I think it's a great film. But I think we can all agree around the table right now that rocket boots are not going to be a thing, no. unfortunately, anytime soon. Just the same as hoverboards. So oh, sorry, well, everyone. Sorry about the hoverboards, but actually they've invented a hoverboard. Oh yeah, some guy did something, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, never mind being a, a, a clever, clever boots, rocket boots. There, Sue. So why don't you make yourself useful and tell us what your number three favourite film of the noise is? Again. Oh. Very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Eternal sunshine of a spotless mind. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Nice, nice. Tell us, tell us more. Again, Jim Carrey at his dramatic best. I like the idea that there's this team of people who are just so normal sitting in a van waiting for it to come and wipe your memory of things that you want to get rid of. I like that idea. It's kind of, kind of an interesting theory. Uh, that you can just erase a person and even if you just erase a person will you find your way back to each other even if you've erased them for is there something else going off that's not just about the memory of each other if you get what i mean i love that i love how entwined it is with the idea of you can erase somebody from your life and you're still going to go back to that person somehow you're going to find a way there there's going to be things that hint to you that this person's supposed to be there I find that really fascinating. I just, I, I love that. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. You, yeah. You're perfectly allowed to. And in fact, this is one of the, the best picks. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, we're in again in talking about identity. Like if you've got a bit, bunch of stuff that you remember that you wish you couldn't and you just got rid of it, would that get rid of the problem? Or would in fact it lead you a cycle of making the same mistakes again as happens in one case? Or, you know, is there hope? Can you redo something? And if you could start at something fresh, would you in fact be able to preserve something that would allow you to keep going through it? Uh, fate free will but in this case fate is like the shape of your brain is the shape of your brain set in such a way that this and that will always equal whatever or can you change that do you have choice and this is an extremely important question that eternal sunshine of the spotless mind asks 
Uh, but the m- nice thing about it is that despite the fact that that is quite a heady science fiction con- concept, Spike Jones turns it into this kind of crazy, well, his usual thing of like the surrealism is pushed, the science fiction is played down. It is a character piece, that's what and I'm saying. that's it allows emotionality yeah. in spite of its heady concept. Um, so and I and like that. of course, the big movement in in his work of of having these practical sets that collapse and explode and the the idea well we're not just going to have sort of a cg fest here this is going to be real mechanical things and so that's almost like a touch to sort of gilliam and stuff like that so it, it sort of mixes up a sort of american hipsterism that was emerging at the time with a sort of gilliam-esque approach to that kind of visual stuff so all in all one of the most awesome movies ever and so therefore well worth putting on the list in my yeah. opinion yeah definitely it's it, like you say it could easily have been covered in a more conventional kind of sci-fi trope but the fact that the visuals are just so engaging and they're just all metaphors of what's going on in the head is perfect because you know it should be shouldn't it all be kind of beautiful and crisp and clear and it should well you know it, it should be dreamlike and strange if it is it's all all kind of internalizing these kind of emotions and things so yeah fantastic um yeah very very unusual and you know say you're right jim carrey spectacular in this i mean you know this is this is uh you know tour de force so yeah great great film i remember the year this film came up but i almost had to like crowbar it in at the end of the podcast as I recall because it wasn't really raised as we were going through and I brought up with much excitement because I again saw this with other Justin in his living room was another one of our shared DVD joys of the early noughties so I was like oh man this was fantastic and the general feeling I got was it was alright so I'm somewhat surprised there's a bit of a seems to be a a renaissance in appreciation for it now I thought it was terribly clever and I, I do kind of love I wouldn't want films to do this all the time, but I love things inside the mental landscape of someone's head, mm-hmm. where it's shaped by the sort of me- geography of memory and emotion and the concept of moving backwards in someone's memory through a relationship. So, of course, he's losing all the crap stuff at the end, so he's glad to see the back of it, but then, of course, he starts discovering the cream of the relationship as he, as he digs down and starts to change his mind. Yeah. And, it's, of course, he has to hold... Wouldn't we all like to just press the erase button on so many things in our heads that seem to haunt and dog us our entire lives and have us biting our hands going, oh, why was I such a fool? But of course, it is a terrible thing that we we, are, we have to have to go with these things to be shaped to be the better yeah. people that we are now. You are. Yeah. Yes, even your failures and disappointments and exasperations at how stupid and naive or terrible you might have been in the past you have to live with those things and i think that's what that i obviously didn't do the year show that you brought this up no you didn't you were i i would have been on that i i loved this film right from day dot i i love for the same reasons ian so Mm. yeah (laughs) <laughs> right great choice yes. yeah i mean it has to be said that uh thinking about things from that perspective i mean you know people uh, often are quite down on philosophical questions of what if but with the advances in information technology these questions are very important and of course we can't forget that a couple of years ago or last year uh spike jones made her about mm-hmm. the man who falls in love with siri played by Scarlett johansson seen. 
well, what's amazing about that is that so many people we've had transcendence and, and, you know, got, you know, other AI movies. What I realized with her was that actually, uh, by taking that emotional approach, but then doing the thing that they do in Eternal Sunshine of Spot the Spotless Mind of just extrapolating, because the first thing, it does make total sense that if you had an artificially intelligent, uh, virtual assistant inside your mobile phone, I mean, the weird part about it is that he works for a company that writes letters to people. And it's all about this completely fake emotion that you've received this beautiful handwritten letter from someone. But what they mean is they filled in a form and said, I'd like to say something along the lines of this. Mm -hmm. And then the writer crafts this tear jerking sort of emotional uh, nuclear bomb that they then send lovingly through the postal system to arrive on crisp paper. With It's just a complete phony ridiculousness. I mean, I suppose that's kind of they put that there as a like a little gag, because the real point is that you start out with an AI that you kind of have designed to be likable, but then you realize that then if that kind of happens, why wouldn't you, if you were on your own and not averse to such thing, fall in love with that person? Mm. And then the idea that other people are doing it, and then it becomes a societal thing. But the problem is that they've designed the AI properly so that it learns and it grows and it's able to get bigger. And then eventually by the end, it's like this global consciousness able to talk to thousands of people at the same time. And you and your human meat sack are no longer enough to satisfy its emotional craving for connection and in the end the robot overlords of Skylet emerge not as a kind of nuclear thing that builds terminators and sends them back into the past to shoot people but they become the nannies and the next generation and the singularity is formed out of this fact that they're built entirely out of this idea of wanting to connect and to love and to be loved that's and that's terrible as well it's that thing of is love a memory connection yeah that kind of philosophical extrapolation is very useful in those circumstances where science can't go because there's nothing yes. to measure in that sense if, so yeah so totally totally uh, yes. a valid pick there well i was going to say the thing that made me sit and think and it's like i've mulled over for quite some time humans have this very unique ability to hold conversations with people who aren't there i don't mean like telepathically and not really a conversation because you're in fact talking to yourself because we're one of the most intensely social creatures well the most social creature on the planet we have a very good people simulators in our brain uh sue can be on her own and but she can imagine how a conversation with leo will go with a relative amount of accuracy and i've always found this fascinating that you know after we're gone really all that will be left of us are these copies of us existing on other people's brain hardware and they occasionally will run simulations where they think about us and how they, they think we would feel in um sunshine of a spotless mind he's not actually with his girlfriend for most of the movies he's with his simulated memories of his girlfriend yeah. it is the simulation of her it is the image of her he has in his head that he uh, talks to for most of the movie and, and that was a very interesting one i'm not sure i'm going with this but it's just one of the things that really had me interested yeah, one of the things know. that had me was the real life relationship of the people who were ra- erasing his mind. Though. Oh that yeah, of course, that other the sidebar. I liked that. I liked <laughs> the idea of these people sat in a truck outside, waiting to erase some guy's mind, but having this realism of their reality, yeah, kind of blending with his 
You absolutely, I mean? my, absolutely. My, it's really weird, but so, yeah, I love that. Ian, it forced you to close the first half of our top five uh, mega countdown. Uh, what is your number three film of the noughties? Tell us and uh, see us quake with awesome might power wonder well having done this podcast where we've gone through the films of the noughties i came to the conclusion there were only two locations well three if you count bath locations where i saw a movie the first is i saw it in other justin's living room the other is i saw it on a plane and this is one of the films i saw while sitting on a plane flying to another half of the world i knew nothing about this film really i'd had no press about it whatsoever it was just like on the list you read the descriptions like oh i'll watch that that will kill two hours plus and it is Neil Gaiman's Stardust. Ah. And it almost went on my list. Yeah, so I'm surprised yes, there was no, no noises here. Uh, I, what, I was waiting for Justin then, really. Yes. Uh, what a delightful film. I wasn't expecting to come along at all. Sheer fun from beginning to end. Uh, I understand it deviates from the story. But the original story apparently is a lot more darker than the actual film turned out to be but they said let's be the princess bride for the modern generation and my goodness i think they did a pretty damn good stab at that this is such a lovely movie you can pretty much sit down anybody with you to watch it and they'll find something you have to love i got this movie for my stepmom for christmas and it was it was like they looked at me strangely when i handed this over going well ian are you feeling all right uh, it's like no trust me she'll love this i know she'll love it if not for, if only for the slapstick of the old man beating up the much younger man oh, yes. on the wall <laughs> Uh, and it's a good epic sweep with some, you know, lovely, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer doing a lovely turn as an evil witch. And it's, you know, about inheritance and, you know, a young man finding himself and un- understanding what love is and all that kind of thing. And it's just, it was just a beautiful thing. And in and, and a funny way, because when you're sitting on a plane, you will just sit down and also listen to credits as well, because you might as well. The whole Take, does it take that, take that song? Yeah, take that. That yeah. was going around my head whilst I was stuck on this plane and it gave me such a wonderful up mood boost. Yes, I know. It, it seems to be invoked the whole journey. It invoked the whole journey I'd just it. been on. And for that reason, it's a very wonderful, lovely memory and I love this film. I have to say, I wonder if it is, in fact, its success in uh, Boiling Down. Of course, as we noted at the time when it came out in 2007, it was this and Enchanted that saved 2007 from utter hideous, abject awfulness. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it deserves also props for being in that way, of uh, being the handsome knight that rode in on a charger and saved mm-hmm. us all from a terrible fate worse than death that being the films of 2007. But I wonder if it is the fact that it does actually manage to tick all of those Princess Bride boxes so thoroughly. I mean, and, and in, a, in a way where it's like, it's almost obvious that they're kind of trying to do that. But in a way where it's like, you can't hate it because if it had been a wannabe, everybody would be like, oh yeah, I wanted to be the Princess Bride, but it wasn't. But weirdly, the fact that it succeeded is almost like the thing that makes it go, oh yeah, that was like a sort of update of Princess Bride, like that. And then we move on and don't talk about it anymore. That is also almost a victim of its own success. Because unlike The Princess Bride, which was a massive flop when it came out, and only afterwards did it ascend to the level where people could ground flights by wearing references to it on their chest. That's, you know, one way of doing it. But when you go, yeah, you know me, I'm going to throw this basketball from the other side of the court. It's going to go through the net. And then you do it. And the thing is, you've got to think, if people actually do that, from the other side of the court, all the way through the air, down through the net, perfect in one. Everybody goes, ah, oh, well done. 
and then you all go and have a shower and go home. You know, it's like, it, is it in a way a victim of its own uh, being able to achieve what it did? Because I, I've never, I still don't think that people are quite as obsessive about Stardust. I think they will be. As yeah, maybe one day they will I be. I think but. it's one of those things that our generation is going to play to our children and then they're going to yes. play. And that's what happened with Princess Bride and things like that as well. Labyrinth. Yeah, and Labyrinth and Flight of the Navigator. And I can list them, these brilliant films that we all gush over. And I think, yeah, this will do the same. That is where it starts. Yeah. It's number three on the list for Ian. And that's where it begins, yeah. you know. Yep. Five films of the whole decade. It's number three. Get yep. over it. But I don't think anybody who, who here would, would ever say. Oh, no, we wouldn't disagree. Right totally, it's a. Don't disagree at all. I think it's a great film. Yeah, yeah absolutely marvelous in, in every way. I love my two things. I love the most about that is the Sky Captain, of course. Yes, yes you always knew he was a whoopsie. <laughs> <laughs> Robert De Niro striking a blow, which eventually resulted yesterday in yes. the Supreme Court yeah. of the United well, States. Uh, but it's you how know. comfortable he is with just himself as a human being yeah yeah absolutely that. i love that and uh i love the ghosts i love the idea yeah, there's all these ghosts funny. following you around it's like oh you're dead now are you as well yeah, yeah exactly. who's got the other who's got that, it that now is fun. <laughs> that is just so funny as they all die through the thing and just <laughs> <laughs> turning up <laughs> oh, i mean one of the best character creation moments ever how you create and completely explain the actions of not one but eight people in the fact that one of them is the father and he called his sons primus secundus yeah. tertius yeah. and it's like yeah one two three four five six you understand everything about him and the way that all of those kids are going to grow up just from that yeah. just from the fact that he called them one two three four five six and seven <laughs> oi seven it's time for tea yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely amazing I do love the fact that especially when he drowns in the bathtub and then he sat next to them drooping wet as a ghost going oh oh that was unfortunate yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah I, I, it's got some absolutely brilliant moments in it it's so magical yeah I, I'm it's, with you it's, it's kind of charming as you know kind of wonderful fairy tale kind of well there's also tinged with you know just kind of something a little darker um yeah it's just great great nice to see that it's a big up for the fairy tales yeah. uh, in the yeah, top we've, five we've all gone for the fairy tales. so uh wonderful yeah. wonderful to know and and these ideas of of fantastical mental play as well you know going through concepts i mean we, we you know we've come so many so far in just our top five to three. So obviously the question that will be burning in everybody's mind at this stage is, at what point is Ian going to put Transformers Revenge of the Fallen? <laughs> will it be two? Will it be one? If you want to run a book on that, Ian, where might people go to do that very thing? It's a foolish and idiotic, idiotic joke there, Leo. We all know Dark of the Moon is the pinnacle of that trilogy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, one place you could go to tell us about that would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, 80s. Please go there and leave a comment. It's our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about. So for those you want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so e-i-g-h-t-i-e-s-kids.podomad.com, Please go there and subscribe to our podcast whilst you can. 
or uh, download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent podcasts ca- uh, can be found. For the legacy of our podcast, you must go to the80skids.blogspot.com, where you'll find a full archive of all our glorious audio adventures uh, waiting for you there. But if this isn't enough for you, you can hunt down individual 80s kids in such places as... Uh, well, leostableford.com or preferably patreon.com forward slash leostableford where yeah. you can uh, subscribe to the fairy tale adventures, comic fairy tale adventures of various people throughout the Levercastle and Bridgetown universes. Uh, it's a chance to make an interactive uh, storytelling experience yours where you can read a part and then speculate about what the characters can do next and then go and tell the author I think this character should do this next and then that might even happen so go along check that out and uh, maybe uh, throw a few shekels into my tip jar that would be great but yeah obviously we're, we're also coming to the end of this this particular railroad and on the 18th of july we will be having a a final show which i'll tell you more about in a minute but first i feel that somebody wants to draw our attention to something justin Uh, i can't believe i've waited till the end to use that gag (laughs) oh dear um well if you want to see examples of my work then you can find them on either my deviant art page that's justinwhite.deviantart.com or my new facebook page which is under my name justin white illustration where that's actually got a little bit more and more current stuff i tend to update there so yeah plenty of examples of that if you fancy it uh, and where can people find you on the internet sue well this is an interesting one because normally i'd say go away don't want to know any of you yes. stuffed. Mm. but actually i'm gonna do some marketing here for myself right now I am shaving my head on the 31st of August for Macmillan. Yes. So if people would like to donate, even if it's just a pound, I'd be eternally grateful if you would go to bravetheshave.org.uk and look for my name, Suzanne Stableford, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-S-T-A-B-L-E-F-O-R-D. And basically pledge. And if not to me... Pledge to one of the other brilliant people out there that's doing it. Although it has to be said, right, that there is a little bit of an extra incentive here. She set sort of temperature goals. So we've already passed. When she started out, she's like, well, if I make my original goal, I'll have my or under. I will shave my head to a grade four. Now we've already, already yeah, <laughs> we've already busted that particular goal. Uh, so we're now in that area between 200 and 500 pounds where she's uh, up for a grade three. If we get over 500 pounds, she goes for grade two. And if she tops a thousand pounds of pledges by the 31st of August, she will be having a grade one. Yes, my wife will resemble Dr. Evil. I will be bicking my hair. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, it, 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 you know, definitely, uh, uh, just to see how far we can get. So if you yeah. um, get like £10,000, are you going to scalp Sue? No, no, I'm not going to. But a, a trained hairdressing and scalp. I'll tell you what, if we well get with. to ten thousand pounds, I'll take away my eyebrows as well. Yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. My uh, but anyway, I, yes. So there, there we go. There you go. That's a pledge. Get to ten thousand pounds, I will remove my eyebrows as well. So there we go. Returning once more to this subject, we are not uh, far from from the end of the road as far as Revenge of the Eighties Kids goes. At this stage, on the eighteenth of July, we will be live to send off 
the show that has dominated our lives, if not yours, for the last couple of years. So you can check out our Facebook where we'll be linking through to YouTube. My YouTube channel will also have a link through to where it is. It will be a fully interactive final show. Uh, look out for details in all the usual places uh, coming your way soon but that is the end of part one of our top five countdown we have only the big boys left to go so uh we'll be back in a week's time to to resolve those final dangling plot threads uh but for now i think uh bye bye uh, from me anyway and from everyone else to be continued ah good very nice Everyone else remained quiet. Just in a staring oh, contest. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. <laughs>